Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. We typically wouldn't pre-record a show like this, but just the way that it worked out on a Tuesday afternoon, Noah Behrman and I sat down to have a long conversation about this very fascinating piece of music that he has composed and performed with the help of his friends based on the myth of Sisyphus. Now, there are two shadows that lie over this work. One of them is an illness against which Noah has battled for his entire life, an illness that wants to take away from him the ability to do the thing he does so well, which is play the piano. The other shadow is a terrible murder that was committed against one of the performers on this work after the recording session was finished. Each of these informs our understanding of the music that you're about to hear. So join us for that after this news. Hi, this is Colin. Before I introduce the guest or tell you what it is we're doing here, just listen to this. Pushing on the rock, pushing on the rock, and I can't just stop the clock by wishing, cause it's what I have to do, it's what Stress the human condition. I can't stop pushing, 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 pushing. I can't stop pushing, 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 pushing. I can't stop pushing, pushing, pushing. All right, so you heard Pushing on the Rock, so you know that this is music that is either about Dwayne Johnson's agent or Sisyphus. It is the latter. It is from The Rock and the Redemption. You were hearing the Noah Behrman Resonance Ensemble, and this is a new release from a jazz musician, jazz pianist, a composer, lots of other things, including a great friend of this station and a great friend of our show, the Noah Behrman Residence Ensemble's a new album. Once again, The Rock and the Redemption. So, you know, there's sort of a lot of times on the radio where somebody who's made a new album comes in and they talk about their new album. And that both is and isn't what's going to happen here, at least ideally. Noah is somebody that I feel, although I don't know you super well, I feel like I will know you well enough so that... I think the conversation we're going to have, particularly because there are several sort of human conditions to steal a lyric there that, that inform 
this album and create a lot of the emotional textures for this album that are very, very interesting and very, very important to talk about. So let's start with the myth of Sisyphus. That's the framework for this music, which is a combination of instrumental music and vocal music by some really fabulous jazz musicians and jazz singers. Why him? Why Sisyphus? Well, I wish I knew where this interpretation came from, because I'm pretty sure I didn't come up with it myself. But there's a reinterpretation of the Sisyphus myth that has been fundamental to my own philosophy. It's not the Camus version, which some people have suggested I should look at, which I have. But the notion is that when Sisyphus was sentenced to an eternity of pushing a boulder up a hill, or most of the way up a hill, whereupon it would roll back down, to the bottom and he'd have to start all over again, over and over again for eternity, that maybe that's not actually a tragic story, but an inspiring one. Mm -hmm. And uh, from two angles in particular, one, if you pursue something that vigorously, it makes you strong, makes you, in this case, you you figure he was pretty jacked from pushing (laughs) a boulder every day, all day, and, and emotionally had to determine had to develop the determination where he was kind of impervious to the sense of failure, which leads to the second part of the interpretation where if you pursue something that's particularly ambitious and you fail from a purely statistical standpoint, you achieve more than if you aim to do something relatively safe and you succeed. So if you aim for a 5 out of 10 and you succeed, you have objectively speaking achieved less than if you aim for a 10 out of 10 and you fail miserably and only get to a 7. But that requires a certain detachment from the notion of success-failure binary that we're used to. It's really interesting that you're talking about this. and I'm familiar with your thinking about this going into our conversation. One thing that we talk about a lot here on this show is about the importance of failing. And what I say to the producers is if once every three months – we don't do a show. It's, by the way, not going to be this one. That is a total. We don't do a show that's a complete disaster, like you know, run out of the studio holding your head disaster. That, there's something wrong because, in fact, we just haven't taken enough risks. We haven't pushed hard enough. We haven't, to use your term, pushed hard enough. We, you know, I mean that if you're going to create and create safely. You're not going to create much. I think that's kind of a different version of what you're saying. It's definitely related. Yeah, and I mean, I think. In particular, I mean, failure itself may or may not have its own valor. That's a, another conversation, maybe or a related conversation, certainly. For me, it's sort of you, if you are pursuing something that's important enough, then the importance of aiming for full fruition of that endeavor is worth it, even if objectively you know there's no possible way you could get all the way there. There's something sacred about pursuing something that's truly important, even if you don't think you can achieve what you are ostensibly setting out to. So one of the things you're trying to do, not for the first time somebody trying to do this, is to tell a story using sometimes lyrics and sometimes simply musical sound. So let's give an example of this, and then maybe we kind of explore both your creative emotions and the emotion in the song. This is Hubris, Sisyphus's Swagger.
First of all, it's good to have talented friends. One of your friends is Chris Allen. I think you and Chris have been here in the studio together with me at at least one occasion. We have. In the past. Chris Allen, amazing sax player and all-around good person, too. Indeed. I want to, first of all, talk about the gestation uh, of this project. Uh, You say it's the longest creative gestation you've ever been through. How long are we talking about? About 10 years, I think. (laughs) Which is to say, I had the idea and wanted to do this and was waiting and waiting and waiting for the moment where it would make sense, the moment where it would be the thing where there was a context that was big enough, for lack of a better term, where doing something this ambitious made sense and where I might have some resources to pull together the musicians I would need. And so the, the philosophical idea and the desire to express it in music was there for about 10 years, and then the musical ideas came in dribs and drabs along the way. I mean, I guess that, that would be part of my question is if it takes that long to germinate, is part of it just simply asking yourself a long series of questions. I mean, music, I mean, let's take lyrics out of the equation for a second. Music can tell stories, can express ideas, but it doesn't map perfectly, right? It's something where the creator and the musician and the listener, we all have to kind of collaborate together to get to that meaning. I'm assuming that's a lot of what you were thinking about over all these years. To an extent, I I think actually, for me, music is a place, this may seem weird to people who view instrumental music as very abstract, which Mm -hmm. of course on a basic level it is, but uh, instrumental music is a way for me to get to some very deep emotional places because I'm not limited by only that which can be articulated in words on a basic level. That's, you could say, why I do music and don't just stand around and talk about stuff is that there are certain emotional and spiritual moral truths that I feel are important and that aren't adequately expressed in words. So for me, there were, as I say, dribs and drabs of ideas, but for the most part, I knew that I would have to go into a pretty deep and vulnerable place to conceive this music and so part of it was just biding rather than gathering all the material bit by bit it was biding my time waiting for the moment when I could fully inhabit that space for as long as was needed to come up with this and then come up for air and figure out the more mundane things like okay do the cello and the vibraphone actually blend together well enough on measure 57 of this movement. <laughs> well, let's talk about those vulnerabilities because, I, I, you know, you're pretty well known in this area and pretty well known in the jazz world. When people hear Noah Behrman's doing a work that's based on the myth of Sisyphus, one of the things that a lot of people, including me, immediately think is this has something to do with the fact that, what, 25 years ago, you began to experience terrible, terrible pain in the wrists, in the areas of your body that you use to play the piano. I'm going to have you explain to the audience why that was, but it seems as though that's one of your rocks. For 25 years, you've been pushing a rock that kind of doesn't want to let you do one of the things in your life that's the most important to you. That's right. Well, and I've actually been dealing with it my whole life, but that was the point in in my late teens when I realized that music would be another potential casualty of this. So I was born with a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS, um, in which the body does not produce collagen properly. And so one of the symptoms of that, at least for some of the types, including the one that I have, is joint hypermobility and much 
greater vulnerability to weakness and injury and so on. So I was 18 the first time I started experiencing wrist pain to a degree when it seemed far-fetched to think that I would be able to keep playing even on a recreational level. I mean, I couldn't lift up a tray in the dining hall in college. So the idea that I'd be able to practice the piano for enough hours a day to express what I needed to express and to be able to hang in there on a gig was a leap, but a leap that with some good support I made. If uh, people, if this were a, a visual medium, people would be looking at your hands right now. You have a series of, of, they look like a series of rings going around your fingers, all of your fingers. What are those? Uh, so these are splints, um, silver ring splints, and uh, they allow me the good mobility in the middle joint on each finger without bending the wrong way or without me having to expend as much of my finite energy preventing that from happening. I, I want to talk a little bit about that time 25 years ago because I just happened to see you writing about it the other day. And I think it sort of fits very much into the Sisyphus conversation because there you wrote the other day about kind of a moment where you were – it was kind of suggested to you by some people, just forget it. Give up. You know, you're – you can do lots of other things, but you're not going to be able to play the piano. There were there was a sort of abandoned hope message you were getting. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the there was one particular moment when it was suggested that I see a rheumatologist, and I took a an arduous and expensive trip into New York, where at the end of this session with this renowned rheumatologist, he said, "Well, you're trying to play music and you have EDS. What do you want me to do about it?" <laughs> that was literally what he said. And mm. so and so I remember vividly the deflation that I was navigating as I took the bus, well, the subway and the bus back to New Jersey where I was in college and sort of zombie-like walking through the dining hall uh, that evening and people trying to cheer me up. And, and it felt, yeah, it felt pretty hopeless there. And... Um, I think the two things that enabled me to sort of dust myself off and get going, one was having a great hand therapist named Carol Johnson, who saved my career on that occasion for the second of multiple times. And, but also this weird sense of hope, which I guess is reflected and weird in the way it expresses. I don't think that hope in itself is weird, of course, but this that's expressed in this music where I just needed to go for it. And mm. I mean, music, it's weird also in that I'm not a religious person, mm-hmm. but I am a spiritual person. Um, I, I the fastest uh, growing demographic, apparently, in uh, religions is uh, spiritual, but not religiously affiliated people, according to uh, Pew. But it's a sacred thing for me. Music is a sacred thing, and I feel like it's a way to express and communicate and share things that are beyond just a simple career path. I mean, the career path is something I navigate as a kind of byproduct. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, at that time, it'd be kind of like if I was determined to be a person of the cloth and someone said, you know, just your, your clergy dreams are not realistic. Just chuck them. It's not it's not like saying, "Okay, let me find another thing in the list of appropriate careers. It's like, no, I'm pursuing something sacred and if I if I do have to quit I'm not going to do it 
from a place of wondering what would have happened if I had persevered. Let me ask you this musically in terms because I want to come back to Carol. Is that her name? Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to come back to her in a second. Would it make sense to play a little bit of the cut Boulder right here? Sure. In terms of what we're talking about, let's just hear a little bit of that. So I want to go back to that moment because one of the ways that you described it is that everything that happened after that moment, talking to this hand therapist, Carol, was the result of that 15 seconds of hope that you had basically been given Mm -hmm. reason to have no hope by a doctor. And your body was also sending you some pretty negative and ugly messages about what it was prepared to do or not do for you. I do think that if we're going to talk about mythology, you know, there there are these moments, right? And there are these people who are guides to us, whether it's even Virgil leading Dante through the underworld, sure. you know, that we, that we don't get out of these places probably without guides. And we probably don't get out of these places without hope. So maybe you can say a little bit more about that, what that, what that felt like when she said, and I think she said something like, we're going to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Your fingers don't really work the way we're supposed to. You want to play the piano. We're going to figure this out. She said, we're going to figure this out. And she was someone I trusted. And yeah, I think hope for me is a renewable resource in mm-hmm. the sense that once someone was saying, I mean, she didn't literally say this, but this is not hopeless. You're not alone. There are resources that we haven't exhausted yet. Mm-hmm. That was that was enough for me to feel like it wasn't just me looking betrayed to the skies, mm-hmm. wondering why the universe had forsaken me. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, okay, I just got to work on this and do the daily practice of the mundane exercises I need to do and vigilantly monitoring both how much and how I play and figuring out much of who I am as uh, a motivator, for lack of a better word, comes from that kind of overcoming. Much of who I am as an educator, a music educator, comes from the ways that I had to strategize how to learn an amount of stuff that would normally require four hours a day of practice when I could only literally play the piano for maybe 45 minutes a day at that point, and that was even a stretch. And so when I say it's renewable, once having an experience like that, it's not like each subsequent experience of adversity requires starting from scratch because I may need to I may need to be helped with resources in a particular predicament, but I at least know that hope is a legitimate thing and so I don't have to start quite from square one in that sense. Right. And I do think there are these people who are on earth and then however we want to explain that, I'm kind of with you. I'm not exactly sure what spiritual doctrine I would subscribe to. But I mean, when we get tested in these ways, we find these people that are just like there, sure. you know? I Bodhisattvas, mean, we would call them in Buddhist tradition. Yeah, exactly. I say we, but... Uh, yeah. um, and, and like when I got my cancer diagnosis with melanoma, 
I mean, right away, I get in touch with Jim Chapdelaine because he's like one of these guys, you know, he kind of walks you through this. And, and, and so here's the other thing about that, though. So Jim is one of these people who's, I mean, Jim is the survivor of a rare cancer that mm-hmm. essentially people don't survive. And also, like you, a professional musician. I wonder about the rock that way. At the beginning of this conversation, you talked about how the rock is one of the things that turns Sisyphus into who he is. And he gets, he's among other things, as you say, he's jacked just from pushing that rock, you know? And I wonder who you think you would be without your rock. I mean, if this syndrome is your rock, nobody's going to look at that as a gift. <laughs> just flat out, as, it ain't no gift. But I'm sort of wondering what, what it is in terms of shaping you creatively uh, and, sure. and, and virtuosically, too, if that's an adjective. It, yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I don't know who I would be without it, which started off, that perception started off, honestly, as more of a, a sort of chosen defense mechanism mm-hmm. against getting too negative. Right. But I've realized more and more that it's an inseparable part of my consciousness, a part of my path. And on a basic level, I feel extremely privileged to have the life I have and to be the person who I've been lucky enough to become. And I think about the old game show, maybe maybe it still exists in New Incarnations. Actually, I think I saw it in my chiropractor's uh, waiting room, uh, Let's Make a Deal. Mm-hmm. I would not trade my life for what's behind door number two. Yep. And it's an interesting and totally understandable, but ultimately um, unsophisticated, let's say, perception to think, I wish this thing weren't part of my life and assume that all the other good stuff would remain the same if you just got rid of that piece of adversity. And of course, there are some degrees of adversity that are so extreme and so heartbreaking that you can't not think in those terms. And I certainly don't want to trivialize anything like that if you've lost someone Mm -hmm. tragically. But I think about a lot of things, as you've gleaned by now, Mm -hmm. but I actually don't think that much anymore about what specifically EDS has done for my consciousness or my musicianship Mm -hmm. because it just it's just part of who I am. I mean, it may be that if I didn't have that, I would have become a lousy soccer player because I wouldn't have been kept from doing that when I was a medically fragile kid. Yeah. And I think also, just as what you were saying, it's something I've been thinking a lot about these days. Not what you just said, but what you said before, too, is, you know, we live in this culture where the dominant narrative, uh, particularly about illness, healing, renewal, is really, you know— uh, it's like all those Smilo Cancer Center commercials where everybody's on their road bikes and they're waving and everybody wants to be closer to free, you know. And one of those things we leave out is sorrow, you know. Mm. Sorrow these days is this kind of stepchild emotion. Like I hear in some of the music here in in The Rock and the Redemption – Sorrow. We are valued so much more by for our ability to get over stuff these days. Right, right. <laughs> you know, come on, you're going to beat this thing and you're going to be fine. And, you know, there needs to be that moment where you go, well, no, this is really sad. I wish this hadn't happened. You know, we're going to be talking a little bit later about something else that's r- even sadder and that you profoundly wish hadn't happened. But, I mean, I don't know, sorrow, it's kind of we need to know that that's okay. Absolutely. Well, and – I think what I value more and more in relationships, musically and personally, and in just going through life is depth of experience, depth of engagement. Mm. And you can't engage deeply 
while hiding from pain and uh, sorrow and grief, sometimes anger. You know, the if your goal in life is to have pleasant and somewhat surface experiences, then first of all, you're probably not listening to the Colin McEnroe show because... Uh, um, or we'd like to know what drug you're taking. Right, right, fair enough. Yeah. But... I feel like it's just part of the experience that we all have if we're fortunate to stick around long enough to have stuff happen in our lives and in our spheres. And ultimately, you know, none of us, none of us makes it out alive at the end. And so how deeply you were able to engage in whatever happens between now and then. At my first Ehlers-Danlos conference in 2002 in Winston-Salem, my the very first workshop I went to, the doctor presenting it opened his spiel with, life is a sexually transmitted disease that's always terminal. <laughs> and and everybody just sort of stopped. And then some of them laughed uncomfortably. And, and his point, this was for a particular, focusing on a particular type of EDS that actually does result in a greatly lessened life expectancy mm-hmm. and saying, okay, so how are you going to live? You know, it's mm-hmm. not going to not gonna be as long as you would like it to be. So how are you going to live? Yeah. We're talking to Noah Behrman right now. We're going to take a break. As we do that, though, I want you to hear – we were talking about The Rock and the Redemption, which is, I don't know, I guess concept album seems like something from the era of Prague rock. I guess. A suite. A suite. A there conceptual suite. A conceptual suite uh, based on the myth of Sisyphus. So let's hear a little bit of something that uh, I've come to love and enjoy over the years, which is just Noah Behrman playing the piano. That is from uh, Noah Behrman's uh, new album, The Rock and the Redemption. Uh, Noah Behrman is a well-known to listeners of this show, a jazz pianist and a, the composer behind the Noah Behrman Resonance Ensemble, the artist, technically the artist on this album. It is based somewhat on the myth of Sisyphus. And there are, as I was listening to it and understanding more about it and reading the liner notes and stuff like that, I came to think, Noah, that there are sort of two shadows that cast across this work. One of them is what we just talked about. The other is something we haven't talked about yet. Claire Randall. Well, actually, I should just let you take over the story. I guess we should say this was recorded mostly in 2015, right? It was recorded in one 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 day, a live session in 2015. And and by the way, on the website at wnpr.org slash Colin, uh, you you go to this page and we'll make sure that you can get to the video version of this. We think people should own the CD, but if you do buy the CD, I think you can get uh, a way to download this video thing. So we'll just put up a link and it'll give you everything you need to know. But you you do, I think, want to see this. And one of the things that you see is this wonderful singer, a very beautiful young woman, Claire Randall. Tell us about her. Well, those who have a sense of uh, foreshadowing will notice by the verb tense that this is not a story that ends well. But Claire was a student of mine, a close friend, became a collaborator both musically and 
in the nonprofit that I direct, Resonant Motion Inc. And um, one of the central musical and artistic and kind of spiritual forces behind the formation of the Resonance Ensemble. And in December of 2016, she was murdered. And I had not actually initially planned to release this as a CD. The video that you referred to was the intended end product, but I felt because this was what I had. Claire sang on two of the tracks on my previous album, Ripples, but this was the rest of my trove of music that we had done together, and I felt like I needed to clean up the audio and present it in this form as well. And that's been one of the major tasks or rocks, if you will, of the last year and a half and change is navigating and coping with Claire's loss. Though I try to make it go I try to make it go It's all about the slow A sunshine And the mountains feel so high The mountains feel so high But is it any match for my intention? You know, the past can't talk to the present, technically speaking. The past can't talk to the future. But I think you're finding, in uncanny ways, the way this recording session, music that happened, music that came out of her in 2015, seemed to address, at least in some ways, the ways that you and other people would have to deal with the loss of her. I mean, uh, you know, well, I try to make it go, I try to make it go. But it's all about the slow ascension. And the mountain feels so high, the mountain feels so high. Is it any match for my intention? This is something that you've written about, too. You couldn't possibly have known in what dreaded way this would come to be applicable to to this singer. But I don't know. It must be odd. I mean, particularly the ascension part. It is. It is. I mean, honestly, just when you played that clip, whenever I hear Claire's voice, I actually wrote a song about this, uh, but maybe you'll you'll all hear sometime, but uh, it's beautiful and cruel at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm moved to be able to connect with her in that way, and man, it hurts too. And what's interesting as far as, you know, resources for perseverance and so on, when I put this band together, it's interesting that out front you refer to it as a, a bunch of excellent jazz musicians, and that's mostly true, but some of them stylistically were more left of that center than others and I determined that I was going to go out on a limb and rather than thinking about okay I want to write for this instrumentation and let me find the most proficient musicians available to do that I thought who is really going to buy in to the emotional and spiritual basis of this because this is the most personal and vulnerable stuff I've written, which is saying something considering I once performed and recorded a 65-minute uninterrupted suite called Know Thyself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so who did I want in the green room with me in the moment before that happened? And who did I trust would on the bandstand not only nail the music, but also fully inhabit with me the substance of what I was trying to get at and mm -hmm. who, who could I look out to and both hear and see that they were 
fully committed to that. And I essentially chose those people. Claire was one of the first people I corralled to do this and then figured out, okay, how am I going to write for this instrumentation Mm -hmm. rather than the other way around? And so watching how community has banded together, how Claire's near and dear ones have supported each other and so on, it's been it's been inspiring amidst the pain. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned Camus. And so Camus' look at Sisyphus, as I remember it anyway, is that at a certain point when Sisyphus realizes, A, that his situation is completely absurd, and B, that he's no hope. He has no hope whatsoever. It's just never going to change. Roll the rock up, the rock rolls back down, and start all over again. He has no hope. At that point, Camus thinks, A, at that point, Sisyphus can fully comprehend the absurdity of a situation and that he can also be happy, that he can achieve something resembling happiness because he's given up on hope. And I would say that's very, very different from the way I'm hearing you interpret this myth. But maybe right here is a place where there at least is no hope. There's a way in which Probably when you got the news about Claire, she was murdered even more bizarrely by her father, who then took his own life. I mean, that must have felt like a place where, wow, there just is nothing good can come out of this. This is as dark and horrible a day as there can be, and it's just going to be followed by lots of other dark and horrible days. What what else did you manage ultimately to think about that? Well, I'll put out there, not for people to pity me more, but I got the news about Claire during a 24-hour stretch where also my mother died and my car got totaled on the way to the hospital to see her. Mm. So it was it was not, not the uh, best of days for me to find hope and optimism right. and joy. But, I mean, all of those things paled in comparison. My mother had lived a long life and died after saying goodbye and so on. Mm. You know, this kind of thing is not supposed to happen. And uh, I think in a sense, both to answer your question and to point out where I most diverge from Camus as much as I intellectually and philosophically appreciate and relate to that interpretation, in the end, it's about love. It's about Mm. love and connecting with other people. I mean... One of the other rocks in my own life is being a foster and adoptive parent. And it's a rock in the sense that on paper, there's no possible way that when you parent, all of our kids came to us as teenagers, that Mm -hmm. when you parent someone who's got that much in the rear view, that you can achieve an unsullied parent-child relationship. But, you know, I, I can't even bring myself to think of what would have happened at any point or what would happen now if I let myself actually absorb that intellectual awareness into my actions or my aspirations. And I have Mm. wonderful relationships with three wonderful young women. By the way, there are no unsullied parent-child relationships. Of course, of course. Well, you know. But (laughs) continue. And yet we're all all trying or, or, you know, I think it's all governed not so much by the philosophical basis of aspiring to do the unattainable, but by love and by Mm. this sense that, you know, these girls needed and deserved that, my soul needed and deserved that. And um, in the aftermath of Claire's murder, that was what I reverted 
back to. So hope, yes, hope for what kind of didn't matter, just hope that love was still relevant and that people nurturing and enveloping each other in a healthy way was something that would essentially lead to the kind of redemption that I'm trying to get at with all of this. That was really amazing what you just said. I mean, that was really amazing. I told you this was not going to be a typical <laughs> conversation with some guy who had an album out. Let's hear uh, the voice of Claire uh, one more time here. This is from the traditional run on. Cut you down. Go tell that long tongue liar. Go tell that midnight rider. Tell your rambler, gambler, backbiter. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. I know my guy's gonna cut you down. You may throw a rock, hide your head. Working in the dark against your fellow men, but it's sure as God. May day and night, what you do in the dark will be brought to light. You can't run on. For a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. All right, so that's the voice of Claire Randall and its vocals and a tambourine. You know, as I was playing, okay, I'm gonna tell us pretentious story, sort of. Many years ago, in the middle of all kinds of personal turmoil, I just kind of up and left in December and flew to Paris for the first time in my life. And one thing that happens in Paris is that I think mostly West African gospel groups come and they take over a church. They And you, you know, Paris has way more churches than it has Catholics. So <laughs> they got to find something to do. And so you buy a ticket and you go, and I'm sitting in this, and I'm in Paris all by myself and there's nobody to talk to. And suddenly this French man sitting next to me turns to me, having figured out I'm American because I look dorky. And he says, what's the difference between gospel and spiritual? Like between a gospel song and a spiritual. <laughs> I thought, I don't know the answer to that question. It seems like a pretty good question. But there's another term, traditional, I think, was a, uh, which is what you use. But maybe you talk a little bit about the way that you incorporated this kind of music and what it is to you and why it's in, why it's running through this suite of yours. To contextualize, there are four pieces, including that one, that are adaptations of traditional material, so maybe folk songs, maybe spirituals. Uh, So which is to say things that are just part of folkloric tradition. And part of it is I knew that I could just write things for those portions. I had had enough experiences with all of these singers, Claire, LaTanya, Mel, and Garth, that I knew that they could handle heavy material It's one of the things that made Claire's passing so tragic is that she was so brave and giving in the way she put forth that kind of energy. But as a composer, one of my beliefs, which is maybe self-defeating in terms of being prolific, is that if it already exists, I don't need to write a variation of it just to put my name in the upper left-hand corner, Mm -hmm. upper right-hand corner, actually, sorry, of the music. So along those lines, these were... These were things that I felt had already been well said as part of this trajectory of the story as Sisyphus goes from um, being banished and punished to toiling to recontextualizing and uh, finding redemption and hope in his own plight. And uh, it's a weird thing, I guess, in that a lot of the stuff from black sacred traditions spirituals, etc., 
really resonate with me. It's weird because I was not raised in that tradition, but it's fundamental to the music that I do and that I love. And I figured out how I could arrange these pieces. Each of the vocal pieces, except for at the very end, has just one instrument playing to accompany the singers, which was on purpose to sort of get some intimacy in there as well. And what we're going to do is take a break here, and as we do, we'll play another one of these, Another Man Done Gone. This will feature vocalist Melanie Sue and bassist Henry Lugo. Another Man Done Gone Another Man Done You know, on, in books, there are all these acknowledgments. I always wonder if some author will sometimes just on the acknowledgments page go, it was really just me. Nobody really helped me. You know, I just did it on all my own. So that certainly is not the case for us, although it's closer to that today than usual. Jonathan McPants and I are doing this show. Has anybody helped us at all? I don't think anybody's helped us. No, we really can't, you know. I mean, people help us just by being around us. Osmotically, they helped us. But Betsy has probably at least made us worried in certain ways we needed to be worried. So anyway, thanks to anybody who did that. And I should say the part of Bill Curry was played by Chick Corea. Meanwhile, I want to get back to my conversation with Noah Behrman, jazz pianist, the composer behind the Noah Behrman Resonance Ensemble's album, The Rock and the Redemption, which we have been talking about very much here today. So Noah Behrman. Uh, obviously, this work is one which I'm still getting to know, one that I really want to sit with a lot and spend a lot of time with. Thank you. It reminds me a, a bit of one of my favorite things, pieces of culture that I've consumed anywhere in the last five or six years. I don't even know what year it was, but at the New York Theater Workshop, I saw Hades Town, which is Aeneas Mitchell's version of the Orpheus myth told in a very different way. But I, that, these two works are kind of cousins of one another. And I'm loving this, and, I, and I'm loving the way it's kind of a departure. Not that you've ever fit into any particular category anyway. You've done a lot of different things in your career, but this is like a new thing I never heard you do before. On the other hand, one word, that one term, one phrase you used for it, and you set it up at the beginning of our conversation, but let's come back to it, is spectacular failure. I don't think anybody else listening to this is going to say, wow, what a spectacular failure. I hope not. Yeah, you hope not. But uh, tell me why that phrase is important to you in terms of how you think about what's happened so far. Well, the concept we've been talking about this whole time about aiming for the unattainable but somehow righteous goal and then getting somewhere that's better than it would have been if you were less ambitious but still not all the way there, that governs my music. I mean, part of it is that because of physical disability, I was pretty furiously prolific in my late 20s in, through my 30s. And at this point, if I'm going to try to say anything, I need to try to go for something that's unprecedentedly profound. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't actually think I'm capable of literally unprecedentedly profound, but I'm so much more moved by the 
possibility for and the striving for something incredible than I am by the guarantee for something quite good, which makes it really annoying Like if you are looking for a restaurant with me because I'm much more <laughs> interested in the thing that might be amazing than the thing that's guaranteed to be a really solid meal. Right. I'm with you on that. Thank you to my wife, Kate, for tolerating this sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so when I play, whenever I reach that crossroads of... Well, this thing is going to sound good. This other thing might be amazing or it might be I might just tangle myself up. I go for the latter more often than not. And uh, so with this music, there were textures that I was exploring. There were elements of emotional substance that I was aiming for. I mean, I knew in my head what the feeling was that I was going for and the uncontrollable weeping that it would weeping yet hope yet feeling loved by the entire universe that it would involuntarily inspire in anybody who heard it. And I didn't get all the way there. I think I made some hopefully pretty moving music, but I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't get quite there. Well, you know, I, that word profound, too, is such a difficult thing to test and to self-test, too. I mean, we probably don't have time to explore this whole question, although I'm fascinated by it. So one of your collaborators here, I mentioned him earlier, is Chris Allen. So Chris Allen, you're a spiritual seeker, someone who's spiritually really interested. Chris Allen is a pretty devout Christian, very mm -hmm. devout Christian. Yep. I mean, I've attended church with Chris Allen. I've heard Chris Allen give sermons. Chris Allen is, among other things, a very intense scholar of the Bible. You know, And I sort of wonder about that. If Chris were here, it would be interesting to— quickly involve them into this conversation. Because like when you test that whole question or try to test that question, how profound did I get? You know, did I, okay, if I didn't get to 10, did I get to nine? You know, I mean, if in fact, you know, you're setting that goal for yourself of doing something that is unprecedentedly profound, and you know that you're a human being with limits, and you're probably not going to do something that's unprecedentedly profound, you still as an artist have to sort of say, well, where did I get exactly, you mm -hmm. know? And I, I wonder if for Chris, because in fact he's functioning within a kind of different rubric, you know, whether he answers that question differently than you do. Because when we say profound, it's hard to be profound without exploring at least some corner of that spiritual question. Sure. What else do we mean by profound, right? Right. Well, and I think he and I are really quite kindred spirits, even if our literal faith is not the same in mm -hmm. terms of trying to reach those places that unite and inspire. Mm -hmm. And the last time we performed this piece, the last time the Resonance Ensemble performed, and honestly, I will see if it happens again after Claire died. There hasn't been a whole lot of motivation to uh, put the band back together, so to speak. But we got to play at the Monday Night Jazz Series in Bushnell mm -hmm. Park in Hartford, which I've always wanted to be a headliner at that. It was a mm -hmm. great experience. And I had these divergent responses there, which were really educational. There were a lot of musicians in the audience who I noticed in the beginning. There's a certain place, those of you who go to these concerts, where the musicians all kind of mm -hmm. line up. And I looked over, and they were texting, and they were talking to each other, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. And th that was not my target audience in this occasion, which hasn't mm -hmm. always been true. And yet I had more instances at the end of it than I'd ever had before of complete strangers coming up and hugging me mm -hmm. and saying... I was having a really rough day. That's exactly what I needed. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, I don't know if profound is the right adjective for it, but at least I know that I'm on the right track when that's what this is able to do. And it reminds me that that's the purpose for me trying to make sound that I share with other people. Right. 
Nerissa Niels, who plays a different kind of music, she told me that one time that people will come up to her at shows and say, when you play, I'm happy for 45 minutes. Hmm. She goes, and it really, there's no arguing with that, you know? Yeah, and I think the way I do it, it's slightly different Mm -hmm. in that I'm less concerned that people be happy Mm -hmm. and more concerned that they feel that they have the strength to endure whatever they're dealing with, which Mm -hmm. is a subtle distinction. No, I think it's not a subtle distinction. It's a big distinction and an important one and one that marks out this work in a very specific way. And I I do not mean in any way to denigrate those who create music that is meant to distract or entertain or party to for whatever reason uh, following my muse has led me in a parallel direction. I think we're going to end with I'm on my way. Maybe I'll just let you set this up. Anything you want to say about this? Like all of the traditional material in here, I heard various versions of people performing this. Mahalia Jackson and Mavis Staples are two of my favorites who have done this one. And I felt like, just like the Sisyphus myth itself, there's this sort of old yet still relevant emotion and substance in there, in this case, determination and pursuit. All right. I'm on my way. And unfortunately, we're on our way too, but Noah Behrman, so great to spend this time with you. Thank you so much, Colin. I asked my sister So